Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Friday, May 12th, 2017 from Slate. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Today on The Gist, in the spiel our patented segment that ends the show, I will talk about this week's news out of Washington as if we hadn't been made to pay attention to the dismissal of an FBI director who served at the pleasure of a man who suffers from anhedonia. And we should not forget the important news of the week. That is very important. And to summarize it, it goes like this. On Monday, the president tweeted that he was sick of that Russia investigation. On Tuesday, he fired the man running the Russia investigation. On Tuesday night and Wednesday morning, his staff insisted this had nothing to do with the Russia investigation. On Wednesday afternoon, he told NBC's Lester Holt, I was going to do it for a while. You know, I'm really sick of the Russia investigation. But there's the other stuff, the fine details that takes the melody and really makes the orchestra sing. The minor players who fill in the tone color, like, like how Nixon delivered his I am not a crook speech from Disney World. Did you remember that? And maybe in a few years we won't remember that during a scandal with more Russian elements than the 1812 overture, that Vladimir Putin was interviewed on CBS. All suited up for an amateur hockey match, President Vladimir Putin took the time to weigh in on Washington's latest scandal. How will the firing of James Comey affect U.S.-Russia relations? He then hit the ice figuratively, but also literally, and he scored six goals in that exhibition hockey game. So from former KGB agent to current FBI agents, who it was reported were changing their Facebook photos to pictures of James Comey, as one does to memorialize a death. FBI agents mourning on social media. This does not comport with my expectations, nor does this. Well, I can speak to my own personal experience. I've heard from countless uh, members of the FBI that are grateful and thankful for the president's decision. Countless. Let us for a second talk suffixes. Would that be countless like priceless? Can't put a price or account to it? Or more like pointless and witless without the said quality? Hmm. 
Before you answer about the words of the principal deputy White House press secretary, let's talk about the guy who's the first stringer, press sec one on the depth chart. Usually forceful, though when it came to making his initial statement to the press, Sean Spicer seemed to hedge. I mean, look at what happened the other night when all yeah. this news broke. You had uh, officials of the of the White House holding news conferences out in the shrubbery outside the White House. Shrubbery! Jenna Johnson of the Washington Post described the scene, apparently as accompanied by D.C.'s hottest wedding band, Potomac Funkadelic. And this all led to a Washington Post correction. Editors note... The story has been updated to more precisely describe White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer's location late Tuesday night in the minutes before he briefed reporters. Ooh, I thought we were going to get the type of foliage near Eastern Nutbush. But no, it says, Spicer huddled with his staff among bushes near television sets on the White House grounds, not, quote, in the bushes, as the story originally stated. Thank you, because, you know, the White House Press Secretary is nothing if not insistent on accuracy. And finally... There were details of the president's dinner with Comey. It was seven days into the presidency, the two dined alone. Opening chit-chat reportedly, inaugural crowd size. Then the president asked for loyalty. Comey counters, no deal. President, no loyalty. Comey, I'll give you honesty. Trump, loyalty. Comey, honest loyalty. Trump, I'll take it. And that, my friends, is the art of the deal. It was a solid pact that endured for almost three and a half months. On the show today, a 180 of what you just heard, that was the effluvia of the Comey dismissal in the spiel, I give you a world of Washington entirely absent Comey conundra. And for Slate Plus subscribers, we have a bonus segment today, as we do all Fridays. It's our patented not-bat. If you're interested in Slate Plus, please join up and you can find out what a not-bat is. But first, the benefits of bilingualism are widely known. But does bilingualism really rewire the mind? My unilingual mind wants to know. And Maria Konnikova is here with all the answers. Why does she have the answers? Is it because she speaks five languages? Or is that bullshit? Hello, and also hola and bonsoir. You see, by saying hello, I really did nothing for you. But by saying the other two, I just may have expanded your mind. Because today, in our Is That Bullshit segment, we're going to consider the notion that foreign languages and bi or trilingualism don't just make people, you know, trilingual, but actually smarter. Their brains get bigger, like a sponge. Joining me now is Maria Konnikova. She is the author of The Confidence Game. Also, the host of the new Panoply podcast, The Grift. But we are on the gist talking, is that bullshit? So often in this segment, we find things that seem logical if you don't study them. Uh, A good example I always use is, hey, you got bad skin, you must eat greasy food. And like that never, when uh, when someone first heard it at 12, I doubt the 12-year-old ever said, that can't be true. This is one of those things that I think might belong in that category. On the one hand... 
I just always thought a bilingual or trilingual person might be smart. And then you hear the benefits that it has with babies and brain wiring. And I've never seen a brain. So it seems true. Like if you learn these other languages, you learn better ways to think. And yet, is it really true? Or is that just appealing to our folk sense of what is true? And this is what we're going to talk about. Well, we know that actually this is a relatively new thing that people think that people who speak multiple languages are actually smarter. Mm -hmm. So if we go back to uh, the beginning of the 20th century, people thought that being bilingual put a child at a disadvantage, (laughs) that it hurt their IQ, that there's it's too much to learn. You should only speak one language in the house Mm -hmm. um, and the child can't deal with it. And you're going to have dumber kids with lower IQ who aren't going to be able to speak quite as quickly. Um, And I think one of the reasons that that became the ideal, not the ideal, but the idea. Yeah, the conventional The conventional wisdom is that bilingual kids, kids who actually do hear multiple languages, they often start speaking a little bit later. Yes. That, um, that, that actually, is true. That but is when true. they do, when they, they do, it's all at once. It's bang. All at once. <laughs> it's in complete sentences. Yeah. They don't mix the languages up. Yeah. Or if they do, they do it in a very conscious way and they know they're mixing them up. It happens when they, for instance, know a vocabulary word in one language and not in the other. They'll insert it. Yeah. Um, so, so they do it in a very logical way. They know those are two separate languages or three separate languages. It turns out that the conventional wisdom from the first yeah. part of the century was wrong. I would also suspect that what was driving that is the fact that perhaps bilingual people are of different races and racism was much more embraced and prevalent. And secondly, there probably were good studies uh, rebutting that, but they were in a different language and the people couldn't read them. <laughs> <laughs> Probably so. Probably so. And so then um, the wisdom started changing and people, when actual linguists started studying this and they thought, actually, you know, more is better. Aren't these kids actually going to have all sorts of advantages? Things like executive control. So how well are you able to kind of exercise self-control? Because if you have multiple languages and you are learning multiple languages and they're all in your head and yet you're able to focus on just one and tune out the other one, Mm -hmm. doesn't that help me with kind of staying on task and making sure that I avoid distractions? Um, And so people thought bilingual advantage, you're going to be smarter, you're going to be better able to do things like that. Yeah, And so then there were a bunch of studies in one of the big researchers is this woman named um, Ellen Bialystok. She did a bunch of studies on bilingual children and a lot of the bilingual advantage or the way that we now think of the bilingual advantage comes from her work. And she did find some things with executive control. She also found improved working memory. And there are a lot of different papers that have come out. So I've, I've written down some of the names. For instance, um, we have creativity and bilingualism. Cognitive advantages of bilingual five-year-olds, a bilingual advantage in task switching. Bilingualism reduces native language interference during novel word learning. Good language switchers are good task switchers. Uh Then some books, the bilingual edge. Bilingual is better. So basically, bilingual child... Yay. So this is this is what I would think. And remember, we're testing the thesis bilingual or trilingualism increases brain capacity. So I would say if someone speaks a few languages, well, obviously they're by definition smarter. They have a body of knowledge like how all these other words work. That is a body of knowledge they possess. That is an example of smarter. So this is what I'm, I want to know. What have they found out about expanding the old noggin? 
Yeah. So um, there was a woman, there is a woman, Angela de Bruin, mm -hmm. um, who decided to look more at the bilingual de Bruin, advantage. She seems foreign. She is, and, she's, and oh. she speaks multiple languages. Really? Yes. And so she always believed in the bilingual advantage, and she wanted to see, you know, wow, I'm going to study this and I'm going to do all sorts of great stuff. And in the first ever study that she did on executive control, mm -hmm. she didn't find it. Hmm. She, she saw that bilinguals and monolinguals were actually, and so this isn't about language, this is about kind of being able to switch between tasks and all of the stuff we were talking about at the beginning. Um, she found that there was no difference and she thought, huh, how strange. Let me do this again. And again, she found no difference. And then she thought, well, maybe there's a publication bias. Um, so maybe actually the bilingual advantage isn't as strong. Suppressed. So she did something really, really sneaky and I think kind of brilliant. And I wish more people would do this. She took conference abstracts and at conferences, people present preliminary results. And she actually found something really interesting. So she found that out of all the abstracts that she looked at, about half presented either complete or partial support for the bilingual advantage, while others provided either partial or com or a complete refutation. Mm. But then when it came to the studies, and then she followed these abstracts to see what would get published, and it ends up that if you showed an advantage, 68% of those found a home, and if you didn't, just 29%. And so she she thought, hey, maybe the bilingual advantage isn't as big. Maybe there's something else going on. You know, maybe the field has been a little bit biased because mm -hmm. we want to find it. It makes a lot of sense. Right. Yeah. And so then um, she decided to kind of see, okay, what can we find? And they looked at a bunch of different groups. They looked at monolinguals, just English speakers, English Gaelic bilinguals mm. who are active. Yeah. They speak both languages and passive English Gaelic bilinguals. So they don't use Gaelic regularly. Yeah. And so they had um, them do something called the Tower of London, where you're supposed to kind of move discs on sticks so that it matches a final image. Yeah. And then some task switching. So for instance, you see circles or squares, red, blue, and you mm -hmm. have to pay attention to either the color or the shape um, and you yeah. and you figure out what's right. what. And what they found was actually that in three of the four tasks, there was absolutely zero difference between the three groups. And we're looking at executive control. We're looking at task switching. We're looking at your ability to filter out distractions. So we're looking at a lot of different mm -hmm. things that people t typically associate with the bilingual advantage. We're finding no differences. And then finally, she found a difference, which is that when you have to either focus on squares or circles or blue or red, the bilinguals actually did seem to be better. But what she found out is that actually it was that they were slower at the trials where they didn't have to switch rather than faster at the trials where they did have to switch. Oh, so it, wasn't, so it was like it one wasn't, of these shows improvement, but right. just to where the monolinguals exactly, were. Exactly. So they actually weren't better at it. Why would monolinguals be better at the non-switch? Anyway. Well, there's. Weird. I mean, the, the brain is a weird thing the and we don't, we don't really know. So what you're saying is De Bruin is bearish. Yeah. On well, bilingualism. So now, effect. right. But she does think that there's still something to it. It just might not be kind of quite as pronounced. She's still studying it. She yeah. still wants to see what it is. So it actually seems that the one area where we do have evidence for a bilingual advantage, and this is kind of going back to your original question about just growing the noggin, yeah, um, is that simply if you're learning multiple languages, you're learning more. 
and that learning keeps you sharp, yes. that learning later in life is really good. Yes. So if you, if you weren't born bilingual, but actually acquire languages later on, this is very good. And that learning can actually stave off things like cognitive decline and memory loss because you have more capacity. And I actually ended up looking a little bit into dementia with bilinguals. And there are some studies that show that bilinguals tend to be diagnosed later, mm -hmm. um, a little over four years later than monolinguals. Huh. Um, the other thing that, that then I started looking at is one of the other kind of myths that we have with bilingualism is that you have to learn it when you're little. Yes. Right. 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 It helps so much. Right. Or... Exactly. So it turns out, and this is very consistent with the learning story and the protective story, um, that you can learn languages as an adult just as well as you can with children uh, when you're a child yeah. and that you see a lot of the neural changes that we associate with bilingualism in older adults who start learning languages. Maybe it's easier with children just because kids have a lot of free time. Basically, what ends up mattering is how immersive is your program. Yeah. And most adults don't have time for an immersive program. And most children have a de facto immersive program when you're being raised bilingual yep. because you're listening to it right away. If you were, as an adult, forced into that situation, it ends up you can pick up languages pretty quickly and your brains start changing and rewiring. They're mm -hmm. not already wired. <laughs> That's something that we've learned over time, that your brain keeps rewiring itself over time and keeps learning over time. So you can do a lot of that when you're older. I mean, if, if adults couldn't pick up language, no one would be speaking Klingon. That's true. Right? What are what are the languages in Game of Thrones? Mm -hmm. I mean, we've Dothraki. got... Um, and now there's some actually cool um, stuff being done. There was a study that came out in PNAS last year that linked the ability to learn language not to um, your age, but to a certain gene, so the COMT gene. There are lots of things going on right now which show that it's much more complicated, that you can definitely do it as an adult, and that it does give you a very big advantage. Um, so... Basically, I think moral of the story, learning is good. <laughs> learning, good. <laughs> Not okay. learning, bad. <laughs> so, well, let's put it to the test, though. Uh, language acquisition, two or three languages, increases your brain capacity, makes you uh, a smarter person, uh, rewires the brain. Is that bullshit? That's not bullshit. Um, I mean, in that very, very strong form, I would say almost nothing would be bullshit when it comes to the brain, because everything rewires the brain. Mm -hmm. So I'm going, you and I are both going to uh, leave yes. this interview with different brains than we began. Yeah. Because our brain is constantly changing. Our brain is incredibly plastic. Connections are incredibly plastic. Every time we go to sleep, they change. Yeah. And sleep actually potentiates certain memories and other ones get weaker. It's very cool. So everything changes the brain. But yes, bilingualism does seem to have additional benefits that it might be a very good type of learning that will help you later in life stay sharper for longer. Yeah. Maria Konnikova is the author of The Confidence Game. She is the host of the new series, The Grift. It's a limited series, but there's still time to get on board. Thank you, Maria. Thank you, Mike. And now the spiel, act as if. That's the advice to get a job, to elevate your position, or get through another day of the Comey story. So what I'm going to do in this space is just inform you of a lot of the stuff we would have paid attention to if Comey coverage didn't blanket us like so much winning. Oh, I'm not going to cheat and tell you about really important developments in Venezuela. That's too easy. I will report 
what was going on with the federal government these last few days, and we're not even paying attention. So the Trump administration announced what, in this reporter's honest opinion, is its best policy to date, arming the Syrian Kurds. They hate ISIS. They're good fighters. What stopped us from arming the Kurds before is maintaining good relations with Turkey's Erdogan. And I just think that this fellow doesn't deserve our good relations. And that's why arming the Kurds was a policy that was cheered by right and left and heard Donald Trump some of his best press. Yeah, maybe it would have, except for this whole Comey thing. And while Trump is or probably would have been collecting praise for the Kurds, the protein on his plate turned a bit rancid. We probably all would have paid more attention to his claim that China has now opened its borders to U.S. beef. This despite the fact that it was the Obama administration who negotiated the China beef policy. It is being implemented now. Trump administration shredded beef. And speaking of that which is undercovered, there was Trump's claim in The Economist interview that NAFTA was unfair because the judges who oversaw rulings were, in Trump's words, I'll quote him, three Canadians and two Americans. We always lose, but we're not going to lose anymore. And so it's very, very unfair. So I reached out to Peter J. Spiro, who's a professor of international law at Temple, who told me, yeah, Trump was totally wrong. Uh, He says each country gets to appoint one arbitrator, and then they agree on a third. If they can't agree on the third, then there's a procedure for selecting that person who can't be a citizen of either party bringing the case. So you would never get two Canadians against one American. It's Article 1123, as he forwarded to me. And now on to the health care bill, which is all that anyone's talking about. Of course, they're not talking about it because of the Comey news. So Congress is on a break and a couple of brave Republicans held town halls. Here's Rod Blum of Iowa's first demonstrating his mastery of issues that go beyond health care. And I know very, very little about any of these uh, 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 cabinet picks because I don't have time. I've been focusing on health care and tax reform. But mostly we and the congressman heard from real Iowans with real concerns, like Ray Seaton. I'm concerned about pre-existing conditions. You know, if you look at the list, everything that's on that list, somebody in our audience has. That whole list of pre-existing conditions is not true. It's just not true. I've read the bill. It's not true. There were a couple of colorful Iowans who made it through. Take this fellow who took issue with the congressman's visual aids. Your charts are worthless, and I'll explain why. His explanation rested on the fact that one chart about U.S. corporate tax rates referred to a small island in the Indian Ocean. I've seen enough British game shows, and I'm curious on on the internet to know that Mauritius is a small island in the Indian Ocean, which is a tourist hotspot, and not saying that Mauritius is bad, but it has zero pertaining to whatever this is. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Dangerously close to some anti-Mauritian sentiment there, Hawkeye. I've watched enough British game shows to know. What a phrase. You're going to get manna from heaven from that point forward. But this wasn't heaven. This was Iowa. And this... You have been the single greatest threat to my family in the entire world. You... This was New Jersey, where Tom MacArthur, author of the MacArthur Amendment that made the bill palatable to the Freedom Caucus and greased its passage, heard from his constituents. 
His event two nights ago lasted five hours, and a not insignificant portion of that five hours was taken up by Jeff Ginter, who started off with the obvious need to collect himself. And then let loose. I work in healthcare, sir. It is complicated. The only one that doesn't believe that it's complicated is an orange-haired buffoon sitting in the White House. Ginter berated the congressman who just stood there and took it, mocked the congressman, and he just stood there and took it, vented at the congressman who, yeah, yeah, you know what he did. In March, you told us that you, you practically broke your arm, patting yourself on the back for not voting in January to just eliminate the ACA. You told us that that was because you didn't think that health care could be solved in a couple of months. It's too complicated. It took you three weeks. Three weeks. I have to say, in these short bursts, in these clips, Ginter might come across as speaking truth to power. And if I was a friend of Jeff Ginter, I might tell him afterwards, hey, that was really good. You got that off your chest. You made some good points. But in the moment, his 12 minutes with the microphone, though not without some occasional zingers, played mostly as excessive. You came from my, you came from my wife. I will not forgive. I will not forget. But you know what? I could be wrong. Perhaps only news clips will circulate and they'll gain fire and this will be read as congressmen who voted yes or catching hell. Or maybe it will play as a congressman who took a not necessarily popular stand, wound up listening to all comers. In truth, it probably won't play like anything at all. Like all federal action, it was subsumed, engulfed, and overrun by the firing, the backlash, and the recriminations around James Comey. And government by spasm continues apace. And that's it for today's show. But you know, yesterday's show was really well received. People are sharing it a lot. Um, It was my interview with Clint Watts, and we went back and he broke down his testimony before the Senate Intel Committee. This will be a relevant topic for weeks to come. And if you do want to share that with a potential gist listener, I think it's a good episode. Uh, You go to my Twitter feed, Pescami, and I've retweeted Clint saying, yeah, this was good. And there's a link to the file or just, you know, grab someone's iPhone and subscribe them to the gist. Mary Wilson is the producer of The Gist. She is only unilingual, except if you count journalism lingo. 86, that graph. Spike the kicker. Adam and even a raft. Wreck them. That might be diner lingo. Chris Berube is actually quite bilingual. It makes him equally popular in Ontario and Quebec, which is very, very popular. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of the Slate podcast, the Slate family of podcasts, changed his Facebook photo to that of Treat Williams, Williams once played the FBI director in the movie of the week. That director was J. Edgar Hoover. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, just realized that there was only a short period of time between when we were told that J. Edgar Hoover was a cross-dresser and when we could mock him about that fact. It was a golden period. The gist, now I am going to play hockey. Umpru, depru, dupru, and thanks for listening.